0: Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week our trailblazer is former Young Farmer of the Year and co-founder of Farmers for Climate Action, Anika Molesworth. Anika lives and works in the arid, dry heartland of Australia. It was living through a 10-year drought on the family farm that ignited Anika's concern about climate change and passion for food security and clean energy. Anika says farmers are some of the most resourceful, innovative people on the planet but they need help to drive change in the face of a heightened climate threat. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation, and it starts with you. Well, Anika Molesworth, I'm so thrilled to have you as a part of this Trailblazers series. Thank you so much for joining this conversation. I'm really excited to have your perspective and we're so interested learning about you too because I kind of assume, and this is, this is probably a very unfair assumption to make, but when I, I talk to people that are in farming, I so often associate it with generational and the idea that they've grown up on the farm. And I found it really interesting that actually your parents decided to buy a sheep station when you were 12 and you moved from living in a major city to heading out to the land. I'm fascinated. What prompted that family decision and how did you react at the time?
1: Well at the time I mean I was probably pretty surprised but absolutely loved it like when when we came out here to far western new south wales willakali country you know the expansive red sand horizons that just go on forever you know the amazing you know sunsets and sunrises the wildlife walking across a paddock and seeing you know this flock of emus marching across the landscape like it really does captivate you and i just fell in love with this place so quickly and my parents they have this um incredible interest in the natural world you know they have backgrounds in geology botany anthropology and i guess i was nurtured in this um household where i was encouraged to you know really be inquisitive about my surrounds about the environment to question what i was seeing why it was like this way and to also to question like how can I look after it? Like how, what is my responsibility to ensure, um, you know, the longevity of these places? So it was a beautiful upbringing and definitely it was the foundation for who I am now.
0: And can I ask why a sheep station? Why did the family decide that they wanted to farm sheep at the time?
1: Well, the far west of New South Wales, uh, the sort of the more conventional agricultural practices out here are sheep and cattle. And when we actually purchased the property in the year 2000, it was the start of the decade long millennium drought. And so it was 10 years, our initial introduction to farming of little to no rainfall. And there were periods where, you know, we did receive relatively good rain and, you know, there was good vegetation cover. And so we stocked um, a hardy African breed of sheep called damara and then we converted into Dorpers. Um And these are particularly well suited to arid environments, to the dry lands. So that's why we, yeah, started growing sheep out here. Um But we haven't had sheep here for uh, a few years now because we're, in drought again and have been for about the last five or six years. And so it has been a real roller coaster. And as a farmer, you're constantly responding to the natural world and to the seasonal conditions.
0: I can bet. And I want to come back to drought in a second. But I want to ask because I'm conversing with you from Melbourne, a major city, a lot of our listeners are within 50k radiuses of major cities. So I wondered if you could paint a bit of a picture for us before we get into it of a day in the life of a farmer. Can you talk us through what time you get up and what the rhythm of life on the farm looks like?
1: Yeah, well, I get up at sort of sunrise, and I go outside. And the first thing I do to start my day is go for a long walk in the paddock with my dog. So I've got a, you know, a a feisty kelpie dog who runs a mile and a (laughs) a not so feisty kelpie dog. Um, And we go for an incredible stroll, you know, past the, the dam and the windmill as the sun's, you know, turning the sky a fairy floss pink we hear the the corellas and the galahs you know swooshing around in these amazing flocks um and after i feel you know rejuvenated by this incredible landscape that i get to call home then i'm back in in the office my home office doing a lot of work online um because this is you know, the world we live in. And, you know, like other business people in urban environments too, farmers are online too, doing webinars and conferences, communicating with their peers around the country and around the world. Um, and, and then At the end of the day, when I'm sick of standing in front of the computer again, I'm back in, out in the paddock and probably doing something more practical. And whether it's sort of tree planting, um, checking the fence lines, doing a water run to make sure there's water in the troughs, those kind of activities. So it's nice and varied.
0: That's awesome. And it's such a good point too that modern farming looks so different to the stereotype that might exist in some people's head. I want to talk about the drought. You mentioned the family bought uh, the farm during the millennium drought. they have been in drought again for five, six years at the moment. Can you talk to us? Because I think people read a lot about drought. We're hearing a lot at the moment about extreme temperatures, uh, ex- extraordinary challenges right across the world, let alone um, right across the, the country in Australia. How tough is drought. And was there a moment particularly maybe in in that first drought period that you lived through and that formative experience of kind of shaping your passion for the work that you do where you really thought wow this is getting particularly bad?
1: Yeah, so a drought, it's like a slow creeping thief. This sort of sinister shadow that comes into your life and it slowly just takes things away. Uh, and it's a terribly draining experience to live through because you have less and less rainfall and you're, you end up, you know, staring at the sky and checking the weather forecast, you know, in an obsessive behaviour. You know, the vegetation disappears from the land, you sell more of your livestock because to ease that grazing pressure on the vegetation, you watch your dams evaporating in the, the extreme high temperatures, and then the dust storms start rolling in and they turn day to night and you can't go outside without a a handkerchief pressed against your face so you can breathe and the sand like stings your skin like like lashes from a whip and it's this really taxing time and the problem with a drought is that you don't know when it is going to end you don't know if it's going to end next week next month or in 5 years time and so there is this real mental toll that it takes on yourself your family your community because you don't have that that income security you watch people leave your rural town because it's become too difficult or too sad to stay there you hear young people saying you know i'm going to move to the city because that's where people are you know uh, are joyful, where they're, where they're loving their work. And the problem with the drought is that we are experiencing more frequent and intense extreme weather events like droughts, like floods, like bushfires due to climate change. And so we have to become more and more prepared for drought conditions and more and more resilient to the challenges they present to rural people.
0: I wanted to ask you about that, too, from your standpoint. You know, one of the things we do hear a lot about is the exodus out of regional and rural communities to the cities because economically I just can't see a future here or from a mental health toll, it's just too challenging. Um, Why for you, Like, I feel really encouraged that you have made as passionate stand as saying, no, 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 I'm going to make this my livelihood. I'm going to raise up and really contribute to growing a generation of farmers who are thinking about the world differently. Why did you respond to that challenge of of drought, the the economic situation, the, the world well-being toll in a different way to perhaps what the narrative is about the exodus from farming communities?
1: Because I also see the possibilities. Like when I actually think of the future and what is possible, I get so incredibly excited. And these farming environments, these rural communities, I mean, they're not just places of business to earn an income. Like, people have a deep connection to these places, you know, a sense of belonging, a sense of um, place, of community, of culture. And I think that breeds an incredible type of person, too, where one feels actually so connected to the landscape, um, you know, such a, a belonging to a, a community community. And that's why I absolutely love being out here in rural Australia and, you know, I can't imagine living anywhere else. And although there are some very real and big challenges that we face these days and that we will continue to face as climate change presents more challenges to us, there are also so many opportunities and abundance Of opportunities out there that can be seized by the farming community and by rural communities that will actually make us more vibrant that will make us more sustainable that will give us you know that job security that income security that will ensure that we have flourishing natural environments but it's going to take hard work now and it's going to take dedication from the people here now um, and every day I am inspired by the community, by the people who I am surrounded by, who are fronting up to these big challenges and going i 'm going to do something about this
0: I can feel your positivity, and I find it so encouraging hearing it and you touched on in the, the response there those big challenges. I, I want to ask you, what are the challenges that keep you up at night at the moment? What are you thinking about actively?
1: Yeah, well, climate change is my biggest concern, you know the way that the the natural world is suffering around us. And it's suffering because of human actions and human inactions. And climate change is a a people problem and people problems can be solved. And so that's what also gives me that that hope, coupled with that that grief of what I'm witnessing on the ground with the longer droughts, with the bushfires, with the floods, coupled with that frustration that we're not moving fast enough, um, you know, we're not moving in the right direction quick enough. Um, I also hold that that vision in my mind that something is better and it is, it's within our reach, it's within our capabilities. Um, we don't need to, you know, think up grand new technologies or practices or anything. We've got the solutions at hand. Like it's now just at a point where it's willpower and determination to put them in place.
0: I love that. That's brilliant. And I wanted to talk to you about one of the heartbeats of this series is around the idea that these conversations around the future of energy matter as much around kitchen and classroom tables as they do around boardroom and political tables. And one of the reasons I've been so excited to talk to you is that you're responsible for putting food on all of our tables. People like you are the reason that we have the ability to go down the road and and pick up food and feed families and the like. And I'm interested for how these conversations show up around farming tables, because on one hand, I can imagine when you're reading reports and 10 to 15%, according to the UN and other bodies of sort of global emissions are coming from the agricultural sector, that when we talk about net zero emissions and the like, there's a lot of fear that can be raised up in farming communities going, well, what does that mean for my livelihood and how I'm expected to change and adapt my practices? And certainly observing political discussion, I think that's the way they try and shut down a lot of the conversation around progress towards emissions targets. On the other hand, you are living and breathing, as you've already described, the day-to-day reality of what climate change is doing to the earth and to your very livelihood. So, I'm really interested. Can you give us a sense of the conversations that you have with your fellow farmers when it comes to this topic?
1: Yeah, and it's so true what you say there, Holly. So, agriculture holds this incredibly unique and special place in the story of climate change, in that we are one of the most vulnerable and exposed sectors to the impacts of climate change. We are a major contributor to the problem. And we also hold some of the most important solutions to get us out of this mess. So in terms of our vulnerability to climate change, um, yeah, the changes in frequency um, and intensity of extreme weather events, the changes in distribution and prevalence of pests and diseases, you know, the mental health toll. We are a very vulnerable community to these very real impacts of climate change that are happening today and all around the world, to farmers all around the world, the global foods producers. Um, we are major contributors to the problem in terms of methane emissions from ruminant animals, which are sheep, cattle, goats, um, you know, nitrous oxide emissions from fertiliser practices, such as the application of urea, which provides nitrogen to crops, um, You know, the removal of vegetation, whether that's large trees, deforestation, or whether that's smaller grasses and shrubs. So we are playing a role in contributing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And then we're also part of the solution. And this is where the conversation starts to get really exciting because we play a leading role in carbon capture and storage, actually drawing down carbon that we've put in the atmosphere back into the vegetation, into grasses, into trees, into the soil. We have such an important role to play in biodiversity conversations, in renewable energies, in changing the food system to something that is providing nutrient-dense foods and culturally appropriate foods, native foods. And the farmers that I talk with, the, rural, the people in the rural community around me, they're on board with this. Like, they're not shying away or blocking their ears to what the challenges are, to what the science is saying. They get it. Because they can look out their kitchen window and see the dust storm in action. They can walk into the paddock and see the effects of a devastating bushfire that ripped through and ruined their community. They are not denying the science, but they are concerned about how do we move forward in the best way possible and as quickly as possible. And you touched on things there in relation to the narrative around rural communities and their acceptance and response to climate change. And the topic of narrative and communications is so central to this because there has been a lot of misinformation. There has been a lot of dismissal of the science, downplaying the urgency. And unfortunately, it has come a lot of the time from political representatives who claim to be representing the rural communities. And we are noticing a louder and louder voice coming from the farming sector in particular saying hang on you are not actually representing our views on climate change anymore we get it this is impacting our wallets today this is impacting our mental health in the community we are seeing the rise of depression of anxiety of stress we are seeing the young people r- leave town we are seeing you know the soil lost in the dust storms or the the biodiversity lost in the bushfires we know this is this is true, it's happening, and we've got to do something about it. And I think this is why we are seeing more and more of the farming bodies from the likes of Meat and Livestock Australia set their own net zero target of 2030, the National Farmers Federation, which represents 80,000 farming members, saying we need an economy wide net zero target by 2050. We've got groups like Farmers for Climate Action, which have over 35,000 members trying to do their best on this issue. And it is becoming more and more apparent that those who say they claim to be representing farmers in the halls of parliament are not representing their views on climate change.
0: And that piece about control of the narrative is so central. I wanted to ask you, you touched on your work as a co-founder of uh, Farmers for Climate Action there. But was that part of why you started that group, the want to give a greater voice and momentum to actually the the reality of the community conversation you're hearing day in, day out, that's not reflective in the way that your narrative's been told around political tables and in media and the like?
1: Absolutely. We were a, a group of about 40 farmers who met in the Blue Mountains about six years ago. And we sat around the table and had this conversation of, you know we we are feeling the impacts of climate change now like we are really concerned about this but if you opened up a major stream newspaper or if you listened to um, one of the poli- the you know political leaders representing the farming community um they weren't communicating in the way that we thought was needed or in a way that we thought was actually representing the majority of the agricultural sector and so from that group of 40 farmers that sat around a table, we said, well, we've got to do something about this. We've got to change the narrative. It's up to us to step up to this plate, you know, at this point in time. And so we formed Farmers for Climate Action. And Farmers for Climate Action is this incredible group that does a variety of things in that it is working to present a more honest account of how climate change is impacting the agricultural sector in all its you know dire realities, but also in all its hope and optimism and possibilities that are held within the farming sector that farmers actually want to be involved in because they love their communities. They want to look after their family. They want to look after the landscape and their animal um, well-being. Then we also work very closely with industry bodies and political representatives to make sure that they do understand the science, that they do understand what's actually happening out here on the ground with the food producers. And then we also work very closely with the researchers because we want everything to be science-based, to be backed up by evidence. So we also work at bringing those researchers, um, the, the experts on climate science and food security to the bush, to the farmers, so they can sit down and actually understand what are the projections for your region, how can you adapt to these changing environmental conditions, how can you mitigate emissions from your farming operations. So it's an incredible organisation and I just feel so proud to be part of Farmers for Climate Action.
0: It's phenomenal leadership um, to you and all your fellow group of 40 that got that up and running and the 35,000 you now represent. It's an incredible testament to I guess, the resonance of the narrative and the priorities that you're focused on and and the way that you're empowering uh, that next generation of farmers to be the change that they want to see in in their backyard, for that matter. I wanted to touch on your international colleagues because I know as part of your PhD, you did crop trials in the developing world and rice paddies in Cambodia as much as you did them in, uh, in New South Wales. And I'm interested for the commonality of the challenges that you're finding with your farming colleagues in the developed world and the developing world and and I guess observations around the effectiveness of uh, them telling their story, reaching political influence and influencing the conversation and climate policy in their countries.
1: A lot of people think, you know, what does a arid zone sheep farmer from New South Wales have in common with a Cambodian rice farmer? But we actually do have a lot in common because when it comes to climate change, we are experiencing An increasingly climate disrupted world. And so we're having to learn what that means and how do we respond as farmers, as custodians of the land, to ensure that we can produce nutritious food to feed our communities long into the future. So, yes, I've done work um, in Southeast Asia as part of my master's and my PhD and just had the most brilliant experience working with small scale subsistence farmers and agricultural researchers who are absolutely, you know, doing their utmost best, who are researching out there in the field in these incredible humid conditions, trudging through the rice paddies, you know, mud up to their knees, taking soil samples, taking plant samples, um, and then trying to work out, well, how do we make sure we can produce food, you know, in the best possible way, in the way that actually is aligned with our planet. The challenges with the developing nations is that they often don't have the capacity to respond to climate change impacts like we do in the developed world. They often have poor labour resources, limited finances, uh, poor land, small land sizes, uh, limited access to new research, to extension services, um, limited influence over political or government bodies. And we should be so. Um, we should never take what we have in Australia for granted—that we actually have access and capacity and choices that we can make here. And this is why I'm so passionate that Australian farmers do their, you know, absolute best to help solve these problems, because there are a lot of people out there in the world who are feeling the impacts of climate change and have such limited capacity to deal with it. And when they are hit by a flood, a a pest outbreak, a family illness, they tumble into hardship. And when you get into a state of prolonged hardship, it's very, very difficult to climb back out. So we in Australia, who are so incredibly fortunate to have computers where we can gather information, we have a phone where we can call people, we have networks that we work with, we can communicate far and wide, we can sit down with political representatives and express our views, our concerns, and give them our solutions, then we should absolutely be doing that.
0: Definitely. And one of the things you touched on there is the responsibility you've got in kind of bringing food to the table for the community. Uh, And I feel so grateful uh, that you have taken up the responsibility of driving, you know, not only in your own family's context on the family farm, but also helping to grow that network of people who can do that for our country, for our region, and obviously acknowledging the interdependency globally, of the food system too. Um, I guess I'm I'm interested, as someone who's a consumer, I appreciate my interconnectedness into the food ecosystem, my consumption choices, uh, have a responsibility, uh, the prices at the farm gate all play into this economics and environmental equation. What I guess would be your message for those listening in terms of uh, the consumption choices they can be making, the way that they can be contributing into, and I guess understanding as well the responsibility, the shared responsibility we have for the reality facing farmers and the shared responsibility we have for our land at large as well.
1: Yeah. So I think the problem with climate change, we often feel so overwhelmed by the issue. It is presented in a way that we go, oh my God, like, I don't even know where to begin with this. It is too big. It is too enormous. And it is true. Like it is big and complex, but everyone can actually do something which is incredibly meaningful and all our individual actions then actually add up and create this tidal wave of positive movement um, that actually pushes us in the right direction. And we can actually just sit down at the kitchen table and look at that plate of food in front of us and help tackle climate change. Because what we choose to eat, how much we choose to eat, how we waste food, um, that all influences the, the land, the, the, the farming system that has produced that food and the emissions that are generated. So when we, speak, when we choose, generally speaking, um, high nutrient-dense nutrient foods, local foods, seasonal foods, uh, majority plant-based foods, Foods that are not smothered in plastic um, and have been highly processed, these have lower emissions. When we decide not to waste food, um, when we actually put the right portion onto our plate to actually fill and nourish our bodies in a sensible way, that's good for human health. That also reduces methane emissions produced from rotting food that ends up in landfill. Um, When we actually make sure that we are compensating farmers properly from our food choices, paying them fairly, then farmers have the financial capacity to respond to changing conditions. They can implement new technologies and innovations on their on their farms. They can do research. They can test and trial and change as the weather changes around them. And that's incredibly important if we want a climate resilient food system. So there are an abundance of things we can do every time we enter the kitchen, every time we pull food out of the fridge, every time we go into the supermarket and select something off the shelf that will then actually send a signal back up the food system and make sure that we are consuming, producing food in a way that is most environmentally friendly.
0: I love that accountability. I'm going to make that a practice in our household every time we sit down to a meal of just taking a moment to reflect on where it came from, the choices that we made to put that plate together. And I couldn't agree with you more about food waste. I remember the first TED Talk I ever watched, which would have been probably a decade ago now, was about food waste. And I remember this statistic that has stuck with me ever since that half of the food produced in America goes straight into landfill. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, the extraordinary volume of waste there. And imagine if our food systems could redistribute that more effectively and the consequences that would have up the day, up the chain and down the chain for that matter. Um, quite remarkable. I mean, you touched on trialing testing, uh, in that answer there. And I wanted to ask you. What are the adaptations that you've made at your farm? What are some of the changes and transformations you've made to be more climate resilient? And I know also one of the conversations you're quite passionate about is renewable energy on farm and that being a new opportunity for farmers.
1: Yeah. Oh, so we've done a fair bit on our farm, um, as a lot of farmers have, uh, which is brilliant. So one of the things that I, I love and I'm so proud of doing is that we've identified a number of rare and threatened species on our property, you know, been involved in these citizen science projects of understanding what plants and animals are out there in the landscape and how do we best look after them. And so then we've built conservation reserves. We've done tree plantings and um, grass and shrub plantings too to make sure that we do have a healthy ecosystem, that we do actually look after this precious biodiversity out there in the paddock and make sure that it regenerates and that it's there for the long run. We have put solar panels on our homestead roof um, because, as you say, I'm very passionate about renewable energy. You know, Australia is one of the sunniest continents on Earth. I mean, to be harvesting energy from the sunshine just fills me with joy. And so many farmers feel this way. And there is this narrative of we've long fed and clothed the world and now it's time we want to help power it as well. And so when we pump water to distant sheep troughs or when we're, you know, in our home offices, um, in the kitchen, that power is coming from the sunshine. And I love that. Uh, We've also adapted in a few other ways in terms of uh, cleaning out dams. So when the, the rain does fall, we can actually collect that to feed our livestock because rainfall is becoming less frequent, but more intense in a lot of areas. And as mentioned before, we also run an African breed of sheep, which is very drought tolerant and tolerant of those uh, more challenging environmental conditions. But even saying that we have been experiencing such hot and dry conditions that as a family, we have almost come to the end of the line of being sheep producers. And these are the the tough conversations that one has around the dinner table of actually what does the future hold for us? How do we adapt quick enough? Because the rate, the magnitude of climate change is pretty scary when you actually look at the science and when you actually look at what the projections are heading in. So, something that we are really passionate about is native bush foods. So, actually, really making a concerted effort to um, plant and regenerate native plant species and then look at how we can use them as a a nutrient-dense, culturally appropriate local food source. And so that's something we're investigating at the moment and working with researchers and local community members on. So we're going through a learning experience ourselves, as everyone is. But it's important not to be daunted and overwhelmed by the challenges, but to face them front on and think, well, what can I do about them personally? What can my household do about this issue? And to work it out from there.
0: I read in a piece that you'd written that your family have experienced 70 degrees Celsius in ground temperatures at your farm. Uh, I'm interested, you know, you mentioned that kitchen table conversation around the viability of farming. I mean, how, how challenging is that to lean into and, and how scary is it, some of the things that you're starting to see happen in your very own land?
1: Uh, incredibly challenging. To actually, yeah, take those temperature recordings, which were open ground summer temperatures, and to read 70 degrees Celsius, it's no wonder that the plants are struggling to grow. I mean, they are being baked when the seedlings actually emerge from the soils, and those temperatures were taken in a conservation reserve that we've established because we have a very rare tree species here called eucalyptus gillii or curly-leaf mallee. And it is the most beautiful gum tree, with silver, teardrop-shaped leaves. And we were getting really concerned that we're not seeing the regeneration of, the, of young plants around them. And so we fenced them off and we did trials with the seeds to make sure they were viable seeds. And then it wasn't until we did the temperature testing of the ground and we were like, oh, my goodness, like, no wonder. And that's what sort of really yeah, makes me super concerned is that we are actually reaching thresholds, temperature thresholds, moisture thresholds, where species that have been here for millennia, that have evolved to these harsh environmental conditions, they are struggling to adapt now. And that does make me feel incredibly sad to think that some of the species that I, I live with, that I call home, It may be the last generation of them. But I don't become so overwhelmed in that grief that I become incapacitated. I use that fear and that worry and that sadness to actually motivate me to do something, to actually talk about it, to actually say, hey, we are experiencing 70 degrees Celsius out here. We cannot wait till 2050 to deal with this problem Um, We have to be doing something now, like every day of delay, every degree we let it get warmer is a loss of this incredible, wondrous, unique world that we are so privileged to share and be here. So we have to work out, we have to, you know, band together, face up to these big, difficult, challenging conversations and go, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. And yes, it's going to be difficult. And yes, it might be Painful, And yes, some days I'm going to cry in my bed because I'm really sad about the situation. But you know what? I'm, I'm not going to give up because this is my home. This is my family. This is my community. And I am so privileged and responsible being here at this point in time that I will absolutely give it my all.
0: I love that redirection of grief into action and because I think you're right. and You've touched on it a couple of times in what you've said, just how overwhelmed people feel right now. And it was something I wanted to ask you about, you know, that, that phrase, necessity is the mother of all invention. One of the things that was, you know, striking me when you were talking about the reality of 70 degree temperatures and the, the scarcity and this, you know, five, six year length of drought, how... How how do you relate to that phrase, I guess, and how do you see that showing up for other farmers? Because I can imagine, to some degree, when there's no ability to plan with any certainty around tomorrow or the idea of when the rain will break or will it get better, that can be a really challenging place to innovate from. But at the same time, there's a need to go, we cannot do what we've always done before because look at what's happening around us. So how do you, I guess, respond to that phrase that necessity is the mother of all invention and there are lessons for others in that who are maybe feeling a bit overwhelmed that you might want to offer?
1: Yeah, absolutely such a such a good saying. Um there is such great necessity to act now. And despite the gravity of the issue, I mean I am so hopeful. Like I am so full of hope every day because I have an amazing community around me who are going, yeah, it sucks and it's difficult, but hey, have you checked out this thing or hey, I'm doing a, a planting of a thousand trees today, and I'm going to make sure that, you know, they grow and my children, my grandchildren appreciate their shade and the, the birds in the, those branches. Um, we are going to learn. We're, we're going to, you know, put solar panels on our roof. We're going to investigate renewable energy, um, you know, projects for our community. We are going to change what we're doing. And I think farmers are particularly good at that because they have such a close connection to what's happening in terms of such a close connection to the environment that they know when it's working well because they're producing well from it. You know, it's it's they're producing a productive crop, they're trucking off lots of livestock, they're um, you know, filling their wallet with a, a good business. And then they also know when something is wrong, when that environment is suffering, when that environment is saying, hey, I can't do this in the way that we have always done this. And that's why we have seen, you know, these these agricultural groups just become larger and larger and more, you know, supportive of one another because we're all in the same boat here. And, you know... It, some people will be facing extreme high temperatures. Some will be facing the flood. Some will be looking at their crops and going, that's an insect I've never seen before. And why is it showing up now and, you know, eating my grain? We're all facing different challenges, but they're all stemming from the problem of climate change, which is mainly being driven by the excessive emission of greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. And... Although that is an incredibly challenging place to be I think farmers are also incredibly savvy smart business people and they don't sit on the couch and whinge about someone should do something they get out there every single day they get out there with a pair of pliers with a you know with a string of wire and they fix something they make something better um And just being surrounded by these resourceful, innovative people is just so incredibly (laughs) inspiring. And so if anyone is going to, you know, pull through and solve this issue, like, yeah, I'm not surprised it's being led by the farming community.
0: (laughs) I, I love your unbounded optimism in farmers. I Honestly, your enthusiasm and your positivity is absolutely infectious. I wanted to touch on being a trailblazer. This whole series is themed around people who are marching to the beat of a different drum, driving a new conversation, innovating new practices. What has been the hardest part personally of that journey so far for you in driving a new narrative and new practices in farming?
1: I think it's probably quite a personal one in that, you know, people who are incredibly aware of the challenges, um, cognizant of what the science is saying and the reality of that science, who are very empathetic to the hurt of environment and communities, you do tend to feel overwhelmed and burnt out because you give it your absolute all. Um, And I have been, you know, a victim of that myself where I have just ended up in a collapsed heap because I have just um, put all my time and energy in trying to change something. And so I think it's incredibly important for people who work on social, environmental causes, who are just so passionate about change, positive change, who can so clearly visualise something better in their mind that they actually really take care of their self, that they really take time out when they need it, that they actually look after their mental health and You know, the old phrase of, you know, apply the oxygen mask to yourself first before you help others. It is so true. Unless we actually look after ourselves, we cannot do what we actually want to. We cannot achieve what we want to achieve and help other people and the planet.
0: So how in a pragmatic way has that changed for you, your leadership habits and practices? How have you tried to tweak based on that want to say, well, unless I'm sustaining my own leadership, I'm not going to be able to create a sustainable conversation uh, and narrative around the leadership I want to see in society, in our community?
1: Yeah. So I've identified what really recharges me and rejuvenates me. And I also am very aware of what triggers me to feel, Um. you know, falling into a state of despair almost. And so what rejuvenates me is going out into the paddock at sunrise to see the birds, to walk with my dogs, to sit by the edge of the dam and see, you know, the ducks fly in and fly off, the swallows flying around. Like, that just makes my heart sing and just gives me so much energy. I also know that when I look at scientific reports Too many days in a row, when I look at the news feed of what chaos is happening around the world, I do really take that on board and so I'm very conscious to moderate what information I do take on um, so that I don't feel so overwhelmed that I become incapacitated to act.
0: Anika, we've covered such a wide range of territory in our conversation. I guess as we bring it to a closer, I want to bring it back to the takeaway for all of our listeners in terms of how they can make a contribution to this conversation. You have come out and said that farmers need our support. They need our support to help them make the necessary changes to do what they do best. So, how does everyone listening join in that mission? I know you've offered us some thoughts around how we can be conscious of our own practices, but how can we play a role in contributing to what you and, and farmers for climate action and others that are passionate about this conversation want to see be the change?
1: Well I think firstly it's it's looking at the plate in front of you and actually making good food choices in in what you choose to eat and how you choose to consume and waste that food it's also um you know, helping to support farmers through, you know, you can join Farmers for Climate Action. We welcome everyone to contribute to the conversation of how to improve the food system and the agricultural sector, because we are all involved in the food and farming sector, believe it or not. And so we value people with different perspective, with new ideas, with creative thinking of how to overcome these challenges related to food security and the environment. We also really, um, you know, encourage people to think about their energy choices, because we know one of the, the quickest and most effective ways to tackle the climate change is in the energy space. And so it's talking with, um, you know, energy distributors, uh, looking at your own personal home, school, council buildings, you know, are you getting renewable energy sources, you um, And then also working with political representatives, making sure that they are aware of what concerns you, that, you know, these are issues that you will cast your vote on. Make sure they hear you and also bring solutions and ideas to the table, because we're all in this together and we're all going to get out of it together.
0: Ah, what a great note to finish on. Couldn't agree more there. An open invitation from Anika Molesworth there to each and every one of us to get involved in conversations around food security and climate and energy and to make sure that our voices are being heard. Um, we will put in the show notes many of the ways that you can support Anika's work, including with her book that's due out this month called A Sunburnt Country. You can read more about this and you can understand more about some of the phenomenal uh, innovative practices, but also the work that's being done to change the narrative and shift the conversation. Anika, I love what you said earlier when you said we've been uh, feeding and clothing uh, people for generations. Now we want to power communities too. And with leaders like yourself and the 35,000 involved in uh, Farmers for Climate Action, I feel an enormous sense of confidence as that's going to take place. So thank you so much for the leadership that you are providing for rural communities everywhere and more broadly for each and every one of us who depend on the viability of our food system well and truly into the future. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for the example that you're setting. Thank you, Holly. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.